Almighty God, apart from your mercy and your grace, we would never in our deadness and weakness approach your throne of grace. You alone are able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to you with confidence, not in what we have done, but what in what Christ has accomplished for us by his life and his death and his resurrection. You alone have provided us a new and living way. Lord, we confess our sin of self-sufficient righteousness, our self-justified freedom, our self-sustaining good works. We confess these things, Lord. We acknowledge this morning that all of our duties and efforts and abilities without Christ are not only worthless, but they're deadening and they're damning. And so grant us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, confidence in the blood of Jesus this morning. Calls us to draw near this morning to the new and living way opened for us through his flesh. And turn us to Christ, our great high priest and advocate who is holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, making intercession for those who draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. May your spirit come and accomplish these amazing things this morning. Sure faith, firm hope, fervent love. As we hear your promises this morning, Lord, allow us to receive them and allow us to rest in them as we go into this week ahead. We ask this in your son's most precious name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. This sermon this morning will be different, okay, than what you are normally used to. And it will be different in various ways, and I'll let you discern that as we go along. But one of the most stark ways that it will be different is that half of the sermon is going to be the introduction. Now, some of you may think, well, that's usually the case anyway. Not, not true. Not true. About half of the sermon is going to be the introduction because I want us to understand the transition that's being taken place in our text this morning, and I want us to understand it well. It was something that, that affected my own heart personally in a profound way as I was growing in Christ, and so I feel that it's important for us to understand this. And so half the Half of the message is going to be on the introduction. The other half is going to be dealing with uh, chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. Okay? It's not even a whole sentence. All right? We're going to slow down for a few weeks um, and deal with these passages a little slower, and then we'll speed back up as we get into some other texts later on. But, but I want us to slow down for uh, several reasons, and you'll begin seeing those as we go through uh, in the weeks ahead, hopefully, prayerfully, Lord willing. Well, this morning I want us to notice this, uh, these two sections. The introduction is a, is a section of the sermon, is a half of the sermon, and then the other half is the message. Let me go ahead and give you the points for both of those. Okay, The introduction even has points. And so the introduction is, is, is going to be dealing with this, two dangerous ditches. Two dangerous ditches. That's the introduction. And we're going to talk about the two dangerous ditches, which are license and legalism. License and legalism. 
And we'll look at that and notice that specifically as we relate it to the transition that we're taking place here in, in the book of Hebrews. And then second is going to be the, the actual message from the text this morning, verses 19 through 21. And that's going to be two bedrock blessings, two bedrock blessings. And those are, first, our access to God. And then secondly, our advocate before God. Our access to God and our advocate before God. All right? And we will get there. Lord willing. Let's notice the context of what we're looking at here in the book of Hebrews. And I want us to see it, hopefully, in relationship to your worship journal. You have it sitting there. Page 3 of your worship journal is a preaching outline that I typically run along pretty faithfully, give or take a few sermons. And so I've been looking at that, and we've just collapsed main heading number 1, superior person of Christ. We looked at that in chapters 1 through 4. Do you see that in our, in our outline there in our worship journal? And then we have... Main heading number two, the superior work of Christ. Chapters 4 through chapter 10, verse 18. And so we've been looking at the person and the work of Christ. These have not been very application-laden, but instead these these truths have been uh, uh, thoroughly and diligently and carefully laid out by this pastor who's preaching this sermon, which is the book of Hebrews, and he's been careful to explain to us the person of Jesus Christ. If you remember, if you want to thumb back through, you can later on. Today is Lord's Day, and it's a good day to maybe rehash some things that the Lord's been doing in your life through the preaching of the Word. And so today it may be good to say, you know what, I'm going to set aside some time to read through the book of Hebrews, to read from from the beginning to the end and just be reminded of how the Lord has been speaking to me. You can do that like at 4.30 maybe. Some of you probably won't do it at 4.30. But nonetheless, um, reading through the book of Hebrews... Chapters 1, 2, and 3, Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Jesus Christ is superior to Moses. All the glory and all the splendor and all the wonder of the angels, all the amazing faithfulness of Moses as he walked with God's people faithfully and with this complaining, wandering people in the wilderness and all of the struggles and and, and lifting up Moses as being a superior example of faithfulness of God's people. The angels in their radiance with their singular purpose to to do nothing but exalt and, and lift up Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus Christ himself is superior to those angels and to Moses. And then we move from the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, to the work of Jesus Christ. And we begin talking about how Jesus is a high priest of the order of Melchizedek, right? We looked at that and we carefully worked through that in chapters 4 through 10 and talked about how he not only is the superior high priest who is a continual priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Christ is going to be the one who intercedes for us forever, but he's also one who delivers to us a new covenant. Why? Because he doesn't bring the blood of, what? Goats and bulls. But he brings the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior who gives to us an eternal forgiveness. He doesn't doesn't bring the blood of bulls and goats who can cleanse for a year and then has to be repeated, but instead the blood of Christ, what does it do? It cleanses the conscience. Superior Savior. He's laying down all these truths. And in many ways, these are just, these are indicatives, if you will. These are truths. These are statements of fact. And we've been on that. We've been harping on that for about a year now of who Jesus Christ is. Have you heard me say once or a thousand times, 
that it's about what Christ has done for us, not for what, what we can do for Christ, right? You've heard that over and over and over again. And I've been harping on the fact that what Christ has done, who He is, and how He has accomplished salvation for us is where our, our faith rests, right? And in all that wonderful, splendid, glorious truth, He's laid down very carefully as a pastor. And then in verse 19 of chapter 10, where we are this morning, it says, therefore, brothers. You see, we're making a turn, a transition. He's saying, I've spent a long time. This pastor spent 10 chapters explaining who Jesus was and what he accomplished for us in incredible detail. He's worked through it line by line, verse by verse. And then he gets to chapter 10, verse 19, and he transitions and he says, because of who Christ is, let me transition now to help you understand how you are to respond to these truths. How you are to respond to these truths. And the rest of chapter 10, chapter 11, 12, and 13 are the imperatives, the commands. This is the response from the indicatives or the truths of chapters 1 through 10. Chapters 10 through 13 speak to us about how we are to respond to these wonderful, glorious truths. Now, this pastor, the pastor of the book of Hebrews, which we don't know who it was, but we have some idea that he was speaking to a congregation, a local congregation, probably around the area of Rome, quite possibly in Italy. He was not picking up on this and doing this on his own, this paradigm, this pattern of speaking the truth of who Christ is and what he accomplished and then preaching the imperatives or the commands. No. Instead, and this is what I want us to see this morning, and I want us to take some time to see it and understand it, this pastor was getting this paradigm or this pattern from the Scriptures, from his Scriptures, from the Old Testament itself. I want us to notice something. This morning, turn back with me, if you will, to Genesis. We, don't, we do, typically do not turn very much, do we? We usually stay pretty close to where our text is. This morning, I want us to turn some. It may feel a little bit like a Bible study. And if so, you may like that. And we'll, we'll enjoy that together. But in Genesis chapter 15, which Austin read for us this morning. Genesis chapter 15. Which, for those of you who are using the paperback Bibles, is on page 7. Now, I want to make that comment because it's on page 7 of the Bible. How much time did we just jump from the book of Hebrews to page 7? This is at the very beginning of what God is doing. Chapter 15 of Genesis. And we find there in that chapter, God has made a promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God says, I will bless you. And I will bless all nations through you. And Abraham here, called Abram, at this time, he hasn't been called Abraham yet. Abram here is saying, I, I don't know whether you're going to be faithful to your promise. Why? Because I don't have any children. If you're going to bless me and give me a lot of children, this hasn't happened yet. Lord, I'm doubting. And the Lord says to him, like the Lord does to us so often, the Lord says, listen, I'm, I'm God. You forget that. Don't, take that into consideration when you consider my promises. God says, wait, hold on. I'm not you. God says, I'm God. I can do what I want. And so what he does is he sends Abram outside. In verse 5 of chapter 15, and he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
Now, is that a conditional phrase there? Is that, a, Abram, if you're faithful, then your offspring will be... No. These are indicatives. These are truths. God says, I am going to bless you, period. End of sentence. I'm going to bless you. It says in verse 6, and he believed the Lord. Now, what is he believing? Is he believing in his ability to believe? Is he believing, is Abraham or Abram believing in that, that he's going to be faithful to do all the things he needs to do in order to make this happen? No. It says here that he believes the Lord and his promises. And what does it say in verse 6? And he counted it to him as righteousness. So this promise was made. Flip over in chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 18. Chapter 15, verse 18 of Genesis. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. The Lord made a promise to Abraham. These are truths. These are indicatives. These are not conditional statements. And then, in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, you can turn over there if you like, or you can just listen, because most of you know what Exodus chapter 20 is. Exodus chapter 20, 430 years later from Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham. 430 years later, a long time later, God then says to Moses, Because you are my people, I'm going to give you a law, which is the Ten Commandments, which is laid out for us in Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to give you a law of how you can display my glory when you go into this promised land that's going to be surrounded with people who do not know me. And so I'm going to give you this law so that you can reflect my glory to all of them. In other words, the Ten Commandments isn't just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a way that God's people are to display God's glory, to to reveal to those who are around him God's glory. To this day, that's the way it is. 430 years later, it looks like God would have put that, those commandments real close. You know what? I will give you this land to Abraham. I will bless you in every way if you obey the Ten Commandments. It looks like God would have put that real close together, right? But he doesn't. 430 years later, he says, you're going to reflect my, you are my people. You're going to reflect my glory, and this is how you'll do it, through the Ten Commandments. Now get this. This is, this is the point I want to make here. In chapter 20, of Exodus, verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. There's no question about that. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he lists out the Ten Commandments and says, this is how you're going to display my glory to the nations. Now hear this. This is the shortened way of what I just told you. This is the short way of saying it. Abraham always precedes Moses. The indicatives, this Abraham, God's telling Abraham, this is who you are. You are my people. Abraham and his line are going to be my people. That's indicatives. That's truths. Those are foundational truths. Abraham always precedes Moses. And then after God declares and makes his people by his promise, then he gives his people the law so that they can display his glory. Abraham always precedes Moses. Now, let me say it another way. If you get to your... Well, let me me just back up and say this. Throughout the rest of your Old Testament, which is a lot of material, the prophets 
as you read through all the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you know what they're saying? They're saying to God's people who are not obeying the law. They're not saying to God's people, you know what? You're not God's people because you're not obeying the law. You know what they're saying to these, these people? They're saying, you are God's people. Why are you not obeying the law? <laughs> you're supposed to be living out the law because you are God's people. That's what they keep telling them. That's what the, the, the prophets, the prophets aren't saying, hey, get on your stick. You, start, you need to start living better. No, the prophets say, guys, you are God's people. You are God's chosen people. Therefore, why are you not displaying his glory by the things that you do? Now, let me show you this as well. As we move into the New Testament, we have Paul. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you will. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 in in your New Testament. And Ephesians chapter 1 is actually on page 634 in the paperback Bibles. Page 634. As we look at Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, we find that when he wrote his letters to these churches that were struggling, that were not living up to what God had called them to be, you know what Paul does? He doesn't come right out of the chute and say, "Um, you guys are not living the way you need to be living, and here's the list of things that you're doing wrong. Stop it. Paul doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't come at them with a bunch of other... So listen, these are things that you're doing wrong. Stop it. He doesn't do that. Paul, in almost every letter that he writes, book of Romans, we're going to look at Ephesians, Colossians, um, the church in Thessalonica, Corinth, he says, this is who you are in Christ. You are saints. That's how he begins the letter. He says, you are saints in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. And so he gets through all this doctrine of this is who you are in Christ. This is what Christ has done for you. This is what what he's accomplished for you on the cross, the person and the work of Christ. And then he transitions about midway through that letter and he says, therefore, this is how you're to live. And so we see here in, for example, in Romans, at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, you don't have to turn there. Stay in Ephesians because we're going to be there in a minute. It says in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. That's the end of Romans chapter 11. Romans chapters 1 through 11 are some of the most thick, dense doctrine in all of our Bibles, right? Then he says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, founded and rooted in all of this doctrine, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He does a lot of work before he gets to, guys, your, your actions need to change. Ephesians, as you're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to who? The saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He goes on in verses 3 through 14, and he says, this is who you are. These are all the blessings you have in Christ. Blessed is the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This has everything to do with God 
Very little, only subordinately, does it have anything to do with us. He goes through in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and talks about who we are in Christ and how through Christ we are dead to sin and alive to God. And then in chapter 4, notice with me, of Ephesians, verse 1, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Transition, you see. The transition from this is who you are in Christ, now this is how you're to live. Now you're thinking, Shane, why are you doing this? Why? This is why, brothers and sisters, because almost, almost the first half of my Christian life, I was in good old Baptist churches getting good sermons from preachers from the second half of all of Paul's letters. I was being told that I need to live better. My life needs to be transformed. I need to live according to my calling. I need to turn away from sin. I need to work away, move away from the corruption of sinful desires. I need to walk in holiness. I need to live in the love of God. I need to uh, display the light of Christ. And I was commanded week in and week out. And I walked out of those churches every week with a longer list of things I needed to do, having no idea how I, how I can do them. In other words... Abraham didn't precede Moses for me. The indicatives or the truths of who God is and what Christ has done for me did not take place in my own heart because all I was getting is the latter part of the books. And so I was being told all these things to do and I didn't know how to do them. I was failing week in and week out with no idea how to do it. You see, in my personal journey, I didn't realize this, that the root must precede the fruit, right? The root must precede the fruit. The doctrine must precede the doxology. The creeds must precede the deeds. The principles have to precede the practices. And then it was like my eyes were open the first time when I started realizing that the only way I can walk according to my calling, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is by pressing into what they, what Paul had said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And that it's actually harmful, even as a pastor, to get to Hebrews chapter 11, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and preach through Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 13, and give you all a, a splendid list of things that you're not doing, that you need to be doing better, without grounding and rooting all of that in what we've seen in chapters 1 through 9, through 1 through 10. And so my desire in this introduction is to help us see that there are, and here we go, there are gospel ditches. If you think of the gospel as a road that we go down, there are ditches on both sides. And friends, we in this congregation today have found ourselves on either side in those ditches. And I will say you're in, you're in company because throughout church history, church history has found themselves in these ditches. And so we need to be aware that they exist so that we can stay on the road, which is the gospel. The gospel ditches are license and legalism. And they're on either side of the path. Either side of the path. And this is how it works. If we focus on what Christ has done for us and we focus on it's not about what you can do but what Christ has done for you and that's the only thing you care about and you say, you know what, 
all, it's all about what Jesus has done for me. It has nothing to do with what I have done and what I can do. Then you're going to get to the same place that, the, that Paul got when he was writing the book of Romans. So should, we, so should we sin so that grace may abound, right? You get to the point where you say, there, there's, there, there, if that's the case, if it's all God, then there's no need for me. Jesus has saved me. I can live the way I want, and I have freedom in Christ. That's the big slogan. And I can do what I want, and there's great freedom here, and I can, I can live my life just any way I want because there's freedom. In other words, that ditch is called license. And when you get into that ditch, you're misunderstanding the gospel. There is fear I have as a pastor, and I think in history we can see it, that the fear is that we so lean on the indicatives, who we are in Christ, which we need to, and we don't accompany them, as Scripture always does, with the practices or the imperatives, that we so lean on the indicatives that we end up in the ditch of license and we begin doing things and saying things and, and performing things and saying, well, we're free in Christ. We have these freedoms and we can do what we want. Friends, Scripture says that we should beware of false prophets. Matthew 7, who come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they're in the midst of our churches. And inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. These are false prophets. These aren't just Christians who've messed up. These are people who are declaring a gospel. And this gospel is a messed up gospel. You know why? Because Matthew 7, verse 16 says, You will recognize them how? By their fruit. By their fruit. In other words, they're declaring, they're declaring, I'm free in Christ. I have Christ. What Christ has done for me is, is everything. And all I have to do is lean on Christ and I can live in freedom and do what I want to do. That ditch is called license. And friends, it's not the gospel. And friends, it will not get us down the road of the gospel. It, it, it is a ditch that we are, we are so apt to fall into. Right. And specifically, as I've been harping over the last year in chapters 1 through 10 on what Christ has done for us. You see the harm, the, the ability for us as a congregation to end up in the licensed ditch because all I've been doing is saying it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with what Christ has done for us. And that is true, friends. That is true, okay? But we can't forget that, that, that as I mentioned, roots and fruit must come together. Doctrine and doxology have to come together. Principles and practice have to be together. They can't be separated. They must be together. The second ditch... The second ditch is the ditch of legalism. Legalism. However, if we focus our attention, as I did when I was in my early years of my Christian life, on the imperatives, on what I can do and not do, how I can please God, I'm a better Christian when I do more things, and I'm not as good a Christian when I don't do certain things. You see, what ends up happening is, is I create wonderful lists for myself. of These are things that you need to do in order to be a Christian. And then Chris Pertiga and I are going to get together. He's going to give me his list, and I'm going to get my list. We're going to put them together, and then we'll be really righteous. We'll be really what God wants us to be. That, that is a ditch on the other side of the road of gospel, and it is called legalism. It is called legalism. And so many of us grew up in that, friends, that we're wanting to flee from that ditch and you jump out of that ditch like I did in my own personal life, I jump out of that ditch of legalism and say, I, I, I despise those lists. I hate those things that I've been commanded to do that are such burdens. And I jump out of that ditch of legalism, and I get on the road, and I'm, I'm doing this, and I, boop, right over on the other side, right? 
I'm running right over to the other side to license. It doesn't matter what I do. It's all about what God's done. See what happens? You see, we're saved by faith alone, which justifies. But that faith is not alone. Does that make sense? We're saved by faith alone, which justifies. But that faith is not to be alone. It's not a faith of works, but it's a faith that works. Did you get that? It's not a faith of works. It's a faith that works. You see, that that phrase puts together, it is what God has done for us in Christ. That, That fosters and radiates who we are and how we live for Christ. Now, you and I have all tried it the other way, haven't we? We've tried to be obedient by our own will, strength, and endeavors. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. In your own strength, you'll end up in Exodus about 21, right? Yeah. I'm going to memorize Scripture. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. In our own strength, we have no ability. Let me give you one last example as we begin looking at this. And I realize I'm spending some time here. But I want, us to, I want us to see, friends, that we can't live in the legalism or in the license. We've got to live in the gospel. And that we're constantly having to pull our own hearts and the hearts of one another out of a license or a legalism mentality. And the way we do that is, and here's, here's my text for this whole portion that I'm preaching out of. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 19. You see that word there? Therefore, that's my text that I'm preaching out of. (laughs) That's my verse. That there's a transition in the mind of the author of Hebrews. There's a transition in the mind of Paul as he wrote his letters. There's a transition in the mind of Moses as he wrote the Old Testament law. That God declares who we are as his promise. And then 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 he challenges us by spirit to live out that law. Martin Luther said that if a person genuinely is regenerate, Try to keep them from doing good works. You can't. You can't make them stop pursuing their God that they love and treasure because the Spirit of God's in them. Now, do we do it perfectly? Do we do it absolutely? Absolutely not. No, we don't. If we do what we don't want to do, we don't do what we want to do, who will save us from this bondage of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Last illustration I want to mention in this regard. I think we do this, and maybe we can see it best, in our parenting, okay? Some of us in our parenting, especially, well, let me back up. The Waters household started out with behavior as being the end. If I can get my children to behave and do what I asked them to do, that's what I wanted. And so we had a big stick and a lot of rules, and it worked as long as they were one and a half. And then after that, it pretty much went haywire, right? Once they started thinking and talking on their own, then... That, 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 that submitting to me and doing what I asked, that didn't work. That's the idea of legalism. All I, in other words, if all I wanted out of you, congregation, is that you do the things that are Christian, then I'll make a bunch of lists and tell you you can't go to movies on certain days and you can't do certain things and you can't act certain ways, and, and that's what we're after. That's legalism, and that's not what I'm desiring. I'm not desiring a behavior from us. The other side of that is the parent that, and this, I didn't grow up in this home, so I never understood it. My dad was in the military, special forces, 
and he was convinced that I was going to be a Green Beret, or at least he treated me that way. Um, and I'm in the grocery store, and here's the, the little boy that's two that's mouthing off of his mom, treating her like she's second subhuman, taking swings at the mom, knocking stuff off the counter. And then the mom quietly and respectfully kneels down and says, Sweetheart, don't you know how that makes me feel? And I think, yeah, I think he does know exactly how he does make me feel. In fact, his heart is wicked, and that's why he's after you like this. And if you get too close to him, he will swing at you, right? That kid needs a spanking. That kid doesn't need to be consoled, right? That kid doesn't need to be told that he is in the family and that we love you anyway. He needs a whooping, right? He needs the rod of the law. (laughs) And so do you see how if you go that way, there's no imperatives, there's no commands, there's only you're you're our baby, right? Does that get anywhere? No. No. If you go the other way and put all legalism and rules and laws in their lives and say, there's nothing but this and you've got to obey, as soon as they go to college and get out from under your thumb, what are they going to do? They're going to live like the devil because you never did what God wants to do in our hearts and what I'm praying that God does. And that is he changes our heart with the gospel message. He transforms us from the inside out. And so that when he regenerates us, our actions will flow from that. You see, in our parenting, we're after the heart We want our children to want God, to love God, to fear God. We can't can't put enough commands around them to do that, can we? We can't console them or talk to them about how they make me feel when you act bad. You can't do that enough to make them do that. It's the Spirit of God that does that. And so I hope all of that has been helpful for us in this way. I'm getting ready to transition from the first part of Hebrews to the second part of Hebrews, and there's going to be a lot of imperatives. Look, for example, just with me at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, that will preach if you're a legalist. That you can, you can, I could lay a serious guilt trip on you. That's what the revivalists preach when they're at a tent meeting and they want thousands to come forward. That's what they come after, right? My heart is that we will be rooting every imperative, every command, every charge to you. My prayer as a pastor, and if you'll pray for me as I seek to wisely lead us as a congregation to do this, my prayer is that every imperative will be rooted in what Christ has done for us. And that out of that love, we will, we will longingly and, and in, a, in a way of lovingly wanting to do what God has called us to do in chapters 10 through 13. And so the two gospel ditches are license and legalism. Let us be aware of the fact that we are going to be in both of those all our lives. And we need to notice that those are there. And we need to be careful to be in the gospel path always. Getting back up on that road, helping one another to do that. Point number two, the two blessings, the two bedrock blessings. The two bedrock blessings is in verses 19 through 21. That was the introduction. Now let's look at our text this morning. The two bedrock blessings are these, access to God and an advocate before God. And I'm not going to take much time with this because, honestly, we're going to be coming back to these two Um, in verse 
when I preach next week in verse 22, the next week in verse 23, and the next week in verses 24 and 25, I'll be coming back to these bedrock truths. So I'm not going to spend a, a lot of time on them, but I do want to mention them to help us see. You see, these bedrock truths are not, um, this is true if you be obedient to God and if you do what God wants you to be, do. That's not what these truths are about. These are not preferences. These are not possibilities. These are not, these are not things that we can hope for one day will happen. These are truths that God has accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ. These are true and real. They are, if you will, for those who are grammar people, these are indicatives. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, I want you to see this. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. You see there in verse 19, it says, since we have a confidence, that's our access to God. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great high priest, that's our advocate before God. You see that? Those are our two points. Let us look first at our access to God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, first our manner of our access. Our manner of access. Our access to God is in a manner of confidence. A manner of confidence. Some translations say boldness. But friends, when we begin preaching this passage, truncated from, alienated from, chapters 1 through 9, you know what, you know what I've found is produced? Instead of confidence and boldness, there's this variant of that attribute that's self-centered, and it's called this, arrogance. We act like we can flippantly, arrogantly, almost without thought, come before our holy God. You see, there is confidence and there is boldness in approaching our God. But we dare not do it arrogantly. You know why? Because it is not based on what we are or who we are or what we've done. It's all based on what Christ has done for us. You see, this confidence, it says, we have confidence. Don't confuse it with arrogance. We have confidence to enter, notice, the holy places, enter into heaven itself. These holy places, if you look over just in Hebrews chapter 9, the previous chapter, verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which is the tabernacle and the tent, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see in verse 19, it says, We have confidence to enter these holy places. We. It doesn't say here, Jesus has confidence. It says, we, you and I, brothers and sisters, by faith in Christ, have confidence to enter into the very presence of God. And then we see not just the manner of this confidence, but the means of this confidence, or just access. The means of this access is this. Notice what it says in verse 19, by the blood of Jesus. Have you ever tried to get your confidence your confidence standing before God based on what you do for God and your status as a person? You have, because your heart's just like mine. You found that your faithlessness alienated you, didn't it? There's no hope, friends, in finding confidence in your status and your works that you bring before God. You can bring, you can bring your good works before God, piled as high as they can be, and say, Lord, I did all of this for you. And the Lord says, no, you did it all for you. 
If you did it for me, you would have left those things and you would have come to Christ. Because it is only through the blood of Christ that we can find our confidence. Have we ever tried to find our confidence through feelings and assumptions? I don't know about you, but every Sunday morning, I have to fight to keep from being discouraged. The word despair sets in. Sunday morning, I feel this weight. I've been preparing all week. The Lord has been putting a message in me. And I'm so aware of my sinfulness. I said, Lord, I can blow it so easy. This thing can go south so quickly. Lord, you can, you can so just not show up. And if it doesn't, all I'm doing is up there talking. Lord, will you, will you lift this despair from my heart? You see, my feelings and my assumptions can't give me confidence, nor can they give you confidence. We so often are very careful to listen to our feelings, aren't we? Very careful to listen to our assumptions. That's a, that's a, that's a fool's way of living. Those feelings and those assumptions will change by the hour. What can we find our confidence in? The blood of Christ. We try to find our confidence in our lifestyles, our ease and our comfort, the things that are around us. When things are going well, we have great confidence before God. When things are struggling and indifferent and difficult, then we don't seem to find as much confidence before our God. But our world, as we found... It's full of danger and toil and struggle. Jason preached last week about how our world's filled with these things, and all of those are to point us to the fact that this isn't our world, and there is no security here, right? right? You see, this status and works, these feelings and assumptions, these ease and comfort, these are all things that the pastor in the book of Hebrews was dealing with. Status and works, he was confronting in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Feelings and assumptions, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Ease and comfort, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. And you know what he's saying in each one of those? There is no, there's no confidence there. Brothers and sisters, there's no confidence there. And he keeps pressing. What is he pressing in those chapters, those earlier chapters? There's confidence only in one. And that is the one who is high and exalted, lifted up, King Jesus. We sing this very confidence in the blood of Christ in this way. My hope is built on nothing less. Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You see, this access we have to God is through His blood, it's through what Christ has accomplished for us. And it goes on in verse 20 this access to God, the means of it's not only by His blood, but it goes on in verse 20 and it says, by the new and living way, this new way that was opened for us through Christ. You see, this way to God did not exist before Jesus Christ came onto the scene and opened it for us, as it says here in verse 20. This way is new, and He opened it for us through Christ. This way is living, meaning that when Christ died and shed His blood and His, his body was broken, For our transgressions, he took upon himself the wrath of God on our behalf. And in so doing, he gave us this, friends, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. And we're all too aware of how dead we really are. We're all too aware. We're made. Now, we try to convince ourselves that everything's great. Everything's wonderful. Life is grand. But then when we're alone at night, laying awake in our bed, staring at the ceiling... We acknowledge our emptiness when we begin looking in our own hearts. There is a living hope 
and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. It cannot be found in your chest. It cannot be found in your heart. Christ opened for us a new and living way. How did he do that? Through the curtain. This curtain is the curtain that actually was in the... He's pointing to or referencing the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The place of the tabernacle where only the high priest could go once a year. And in that day, the day of atonement, which was Yom Kippur, he would do it for just a, a, a while to, uh, to bring the, the blood for the sacrifices of God's people so that they can be atoned for and their sins can be forgiven. Once a year, he would go in there over and over again. And you know what the high priest would do? He would prepare... For days to go into this most holy place. Then he would go into the holy place and he would do the things he needed to do, all the rituals and things. And then at a particular time when he had everything ready, he would take his hands and he would break that curtain open. And he would step into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he would go there only once a year and only then with blood, as it says in Hebrews chapter 9, to make forgiveness for God's people. Think, if you will, this... This curtain that he placed his hands in opened up and walked through into this most holy place. It says here, verse 20, that Christ has given to us this new and living way. He opened it for us. In other words, he went through, through this curtain by his flesh. By the death of his body, he opened that way for us. Notice this. This is amazing. This is amazing. I was reading this over and over again. I didn't see this until I, until, until I began just kind of looking at it carefully. Notice what it says in verse 20. By this new and living way that he opened for us. Meditate on that, brothers and sisters. He opened that way for us. Apart from him opening it for us, there's no way we could have opened it. There's no way we could have entered into the holy heavens in the presence of God himself. Christ came, died, shed his blood so that he may open for us by the death of his body, the breaking of his body, a way to get to God. This is our access to Christ. And so what I want to say concerning this in this particular regard is this, and then we'll close with verse 21, which is very short. Our fighting, our fighting to be what God wants us to be, to live the life that God wants us to live. Hear this. Our fighting to be what God wants us to be and to live the life that God wants us to live is a fight to believe the gospel. Did you hear that? Our fight is the fight to believe the gospel. It's not a fight to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do better and try harder. I need to just schedule better. I need to have a life that's less chaotic. I need to take care of things in my life. There's all kinds of things. Now, those things may be true. That may be true. But at the end of the day, it's a fight for belief. Are you going to believe what Christ said in his word are the promises? That's what this is saying. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, because this is true, then we can begin living the life that God's called us to live. It's a fight of believing the gospel. For faith in Christ is sufficient. Faith is affirming this truth. And when we affirm this truth, we begin living this truth. Let me explain it this way. Having faith in Christ, that means affirming that God, what he says is true. 
necessarily produces faithfulness, which is actions in life that shows that. But don't, don't try to have this tree with bad roots or no roots at all and then uh, tape or hang apples to the tree. You're doing no good. It has to be first the root. Go to who Christ is, and then out of who Christ is, begin living your life fruitfully in the way that God's called us to. Finally, verse 21, our advocate before God, and this is quick because we're going to be talking about it later. It says, not only since we have confidence, but secondly, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let me simply do this as we look at this. We have a high priest who is, according to this, a great high priest, a great priest. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, why is he great? Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says it's because he's able to save us to the uttermost. He is great because when we draw near to our God, he lives to make intercession for us. That's a great high priest. We have a great high priest because it is fitting that he should be this high priest. Why? Because he's great because he is holy, he is innocent, he is unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is a great high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 27. Our great high priest, though, just because he is up in heaven, he's exalted, he's holy, he's separated from sinners, that makes him a great high priest indeed. But not only is he a great high priest, but he's an advocate. Because, friends, it's one thing for us to have access to God. It's another thing for us to have an advocate before God day in and day out. You and I both know we need that, don't we? Day in and day out, we need an advocate before God. We need one who is, who is, who is speaking to us and, 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 and placing faith in our hearts and, and calling to us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16 says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet he's without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy. That's what our advocate does, friends. He gives us mercy when we deserve judgment. Our advocate comes and says, I'm going I'm to give you mercy instead of judgment, that we may receive mercy and find grace when to help us in our time of need. Notice our passage, it says in verse 21, that we have a great, a great priest over what? The house of God. How is Christ our advocate? I mean, practically, really. I mean, we're talking about Jesus being in heavens. He's opened the way for us to be with God. All of that is in the heavens and up there, and we are in the presence of God just as, just as, just as we are, just as Christ has died for us, and all of that's great and good. But how? it's like the little boy who, who said you know, he was scared at night before he went to bed, and his mom came in there and says, don't worry, Jesus is, is with you. And the little boy says, yes, Mommy, but I need a Jesus with, with skin on him. Right? Sometimes we need somebody with skin on him. A Jesus that has skin on him to, to be my advocate, to help me, to push me toward Christ, to encourage me, to, to show me this grace and receive mercy. That's why Jesus here, according to verse 21, is the great high priest over what? The house of God. Because, friends, it is, it is absolutely necessary. Did you hear that word? Necessary. Not optional, not best, not good. It is necessary for you to be in a body of believers. Why? Because that's how God works through the person of Jesus Christ to be our advocate. 
It is one another's. It is us encouraging and helping one another and, 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 and speaking into one another's lives and, and helping one another. When we're in that ditch of legalism or that ditch of license, it is the brothers and sisters in Christ who are helping one another out and saying, let's get back on the gospel road. Let's start doing what God's called us to do. When we are weak and struggling and in sin, you know what we do? We go to one another and we say, Lord, you know, I need to, I need, would you pray for me? Will you encourage me? Will you help me? Will you speak truth into my life? How is Jesus being our advocate? He does it through his body, through the people of Jesus Christ, through his church, which is the body of Christ. And so notice with me, if you will, on page three of your worship journal, that we talked about heading number one, the person of Jesus Christ in chapters one through four. We talked about the work of Jesus Christ in chapters four through ten. And then the main heading number three, which is the last one, is chapters 10 through 13, the superior life that we have in Christ. Notice the three main headings under the, the number three there. The community, the community's present challenge. Letter B, the community's past challenges. Letter C, the community's future challenges. All of these commands that are in the book of Hebrews aren't for individuals. In other words, you can't do the latter part of Hebrews by yourself. These commands are to be lived out among one another. Let me ask you this. Can you do, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart? That's not to you. The command here is that all of us encourage one another to draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith. You can't do that verse 22 by yourself. If you wanted to, you couldn't do it. Because it's us. Let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. You can't do that by yourself. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up. Do that by yourself. Can't do it. We're to be doing this within a body of believers. We're to be sharpening one another, encouraging one another. You see here in verse 22... It speaks of the faith that we're to have as a body of believers. 23 speaks of the hope that we're to have as a body of believers. In verse 24, it speaks of the love that we're to have. That's what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks, talking about the faith that God has given to us because of what Christ has accomplished, the hope that he's given to us because of what Christ has accomplished, and the love that God has given to us because of what Christ accomplished. We're going to be looking at those in the next several weeks together. Let me end with this quote, and I thank you for your patience. Thomas Wilcox, Puritan, wrote this. In every duty, look to Christ. Before every duty, consider your pardon. In every duty, ask for God's assistance. After every duty, thank him for your acceptance. Without this, your duties will be careless and carnal. You see what's happening? Every step along the way, that duty was informed and driven by who Christ was. And then he closes the quote by saying this, Let sin break your heart, but not your hope in the gospel. Let sin break your heart, but never let it break your hope in the gospel. Let us pray.